Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host of these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Joseph. Virtually everything Alan Joseph has written emanates from his deep love for Spain and Spanish culture, including Spanish-speaking countries of Latin America. A world-renowned Hemingway scholar and past president of Ernest Hemingway Foundation Society, Joseph has also been president of South Atlantic Modern Language Association and was recently made an honorary member. He's written 15 books, including On Hemingway in Spain, Essays and Reviews, 1979 to 2013, White Wall of Spain, The Mysteries of Andalusian Culture, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, Ernest Hemingway's Undiscovered Country. He is the author of four critical editions of the poetry of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca and a book of translations, Lorca's Poetry and Prose, Only Mystery, Federico Garcia Lorca's Poetry in Word and Image. He has published numerous articles in Spain, Hispanic culture in the Atlantic, New Republic, Virginia Quarterly in the North Dakota Quarterly, New York Times Book Review, as well as many publications in scholarly journals. Joseph received the George B. Smith Arts and Letters Award by the National Association of Taurian Clubs for his book, Ritual and Sacrifice in the Corrida, was conferred an honorary membership in the Taurian Bibliophiles of America for his, quote, outstanding contributions to Taurian scholarship. Since 2007, so, he has focused on the works of Cormac McCarthy. His latest book is on Cormac McCarthy, Essays on Mexico, Crime, Hemingway, and God, published by New Street in 2016. Recently, he's translated his daughter, poet Laura Juliet Wood, the work of Spanish poet Fernando Valverde, and their translation of The Insistence of Harm appeared in 2019 for University Press of Florida. Alan is university research professor and professor of Spanish at University of West Florida, where he has taught for more than five decades. Finally, I should note that Cormac McCarthy's brother, Dennis, has told a story of Cormac visiting, seeing Alan's book there in his room, borrowing the book and returning it to Dennis later after he'd read it with a note saying he gets it. So Alan, that's quite an endorsement. Now, I get to kind of answer this question with you better than most people. But what I always ask everyone who comes on the show is, how did you discover Cormac McCarthy? I discovered Cormac McCarthy because of you and Chip Arnold. Chip Arnold, when I was doing a real estate development up in North Carolina in Blowing Rock, was teaching in Boone. And he used to come over and have drinks at my house sometimes. And and he just kept getting on me about reading Cormac McCarthy. And every time I'd go to Sam, I'd run into you and you'd get on me about reading Cormac McCarthy. And then one day you went out and you bought me a copy. And I bought you a copy <laughs> particularly of? Of this book that we're going All to be talking horses. about today. All the Pretty Horses. And that's the one to begin with. I, I really believe that. You're, you're absolutely right. And I just have to thank you and Chip both from the bottom of my heart, because I don't think I've ever enjoyed discovering somebody more than I have discovering Cormac McCarthy. The possible exception maybe being Lorca when I was a kid. Now, I believe, if, if I remember correctly, that this was at a December meeting. You and I were both serving on the executive board for uh, SAMLA, South Atlantic uh, Modern Language Association. And by April, you had read about everything. And then by the next fall, we both saw each other at American Literature Association Symposium and both served on a Cormac McCarthy panel there together. So it didn't take you long to 
to hop on the bus and, and move right up to the front row there, Alan. Uh, you, you got a lot of reading, a lot of research done very quickly. Well, you know, what happened was I thought, you know, I got to read some more. And the next thing I read was The Road. And I think The Road was, the, and those are my two favorites, mm-hmm. All the Pretty Horses and The Road. Uh, but I, I think that there's been no book in my reading history since I was, what I, however old I was, five or six when I started reading, that impacted me as much as The Road did. The first thing I did when I finished it, which was in less than 24 hours, was I started it over. I went yep. right back to the beginning and started reading it again. No other book. It is that tremend- tremendous a book, and I can't think of many others that have hit me the same way either. Now, you and I had discussions during all this, and I told you that when I first got involved in McCarthy studies, <clears throat> I came in from having been studying Faulkner, and I was really doing Hemingway about as much, but my dissertation was on Faulkner. And it initially, most of the people who were involved in reading McCarthy critically in writing and publishing, I should say, doing scholarship on McCarthy, were coming over from Faulkner studies. But then the kind of second wave, we see a lot of people get interested, such as yourself, from Hemingway studies. What do you what do you think the connection there? The Faulkner ones everyone has talked about for years. And of course they shared in editors, Diane Luce has written about in great detail and in illuminating ways. But what about a connection to Hemingway? And that this would be probably a future episode that we spend the whole episode on Hemingway and McCarthy, but it's a kind of teaser and a brief note. What do you think about that connection? Well, I like to tell a story about Garcia Marquez, the Colombian novelist who won the Nobel prize, particularly for his, uh, his great magical realist novel. He said once I had two maestros, Faulkner and Hemingway. And I read Hemingway to undo the influence of Faulkner. <laughs> and I think that describes, I think that describes McCarthy rather perfectly as well, because McCarthy starts out in his first novels, especially the first one, The Orchard Keeper, he's very Faulknerian sounding. Right. He's got he's got a lot of those Faulknerian sentences, that kind of diction of Faulkner's, where things are in constant tension. I think about that. That thing when they're there's they're having a fight and they're over a, a tire uh, tire tool, and it's it's he says they were frozen as if they were handing it off one to the other when they were actually fighting for it. Right. I mean, they can't get much more Faulknerian than that. Right. And uh, I, I think that you know it's natural to as a Southern writer to be influenced by Faulkner, absolutely. But along the way, he got somewhat simpler and somewhat clearer in his diction, somewhat less involved in the sort of self-consciousness of the diction. And uh, anyway, you see, especially in the road, a hell of a lot of Hemingway. Right. Intentionally incorporated into the, into his, into the road, into the novel. Yeah. He makes uh, overt references and I'll tell you, and we can talk about this in the future. I I'm seeing now that I finally have a copy, uh, and it, at the time we're recording this, the passenger's not been, we're still a week out from its official publication date, but I've been able to read an advanced copy. And I'm seeing some interesting Hemingway things going on in that book, which I'll, I'll talk to you about in the future. So if, if we briefly, uh, returning to all the pretty horses, if we briefly consider the plot, it seems to be a pretty straightforward plot. We have a teenager and his best friend 
who decide to take off from Mexico for, for reasons maybe we'll talk to about in a minute. They encounter an even younger teenager along the way. So John Grady is 16 going on 17. And this other boy is maybe 12, 13, uh, Jimmy Blevins. And together they cross into Mexico. Complications ensue. John Grady and Rollins end up working at a ranch. Then there's a girl because, you know, Alan, there's always a girl. There always is. And then uh, complications ensue again. He and Rollins are thrown into a prison where they both almost die. They separate. John Grady kind of goes again, goes after the horses and finally makes his way back to the United States. So plot wise, it seems like a pretty familiar story, but it's doing so much more than anything we would expect. Wouldn't we? I think it, I think maybe it's important to remember that it's set in 49 just because it's kind of the, the end of the Old West. We've we've ended World War II. The world is changing, becoming more mechanized. Everything's crisscrossed with fence posts and fencing and highways. It's not the old open plains anymore. How much do you really need cowboys if you don't have to do roundups of the open plains? If you've actually got trucks to herd the horses, you've got uh, barbed wire fences to keep them from wandering. So a, a roundup is not that complex anymore. And and so they decide to to head south. Don't you? I think the main reason that they go south is because of what's happening to American culture. And that whole backstory of his mother selling out the ranch that he thought was going to be his. Right. In order to finance her theatrical career. You know, right. that's, I think, what's really behind the the escape to Mexico. It's, it's an escapement from, from the pressures of a new American life that's, that's very starkly on the horizon. Right. But suddenly he's 16 years old and he sees he's got no future. Yeah. The future that he thought he had with his grandfather in the ranch is gone. And it, it's interesting that his name comes from the matriarchal side of his patrimony. It's his uh, maternal grandfather. And his uh, the ranch comes from the mother's side yeah. of the line, where his father is a former World War II POW, uh, ostensibly from the Pacific Theater, and had been kind of destroyed by that and never completely recovered. And at the time the book opens, he's dying of cancer. So he had an idea of the old masculine virtues, the old masculine ways are kind of dying out and, and passing away and... So John Grady, again, you know, trying to grow up as this, I guess you would almost say 19th century, early 20th century idea of what a man has to be, just doesn't see a place for him in this future. Yeah, well, remember at the end of the book, when Rollins asked him what his country is, and he says, I don't know what happens to country. Right. Don't know. Of course, he's talking about, he's talking about what would have been his future in Texas, but no longer is because his mother sold him out. I mean, what she does in a way is she's selling out a whole way of life. And the, the, the Comanches would just watch him go by into the world to come. And we know what that world to come is because we've seen all those dreams and things, all the portents. We don't really realize it until we get to um, cities of the plain. Right. And then we understand that dream of hers that was so strange uh, that he didn't understand. Right. The dream of Alejandra has of him. Yeah, his brother crying for him and uh, and all that, and that's absolutely right. And she says, and she says, "Ituputa." Yeah, and he thinks that she's calling herself a whore, right? 
She's not. She's foreseeing what's going to happen in her dream. She's foreseeing what's going to happen in Cities of the Plain. Now, that contextualizes that book in a way that if you didn't have the trilogy, that wouldn't happen. Right. There's there's a kind of a trajectory in McCarthy from innocence into horrible conspiracy and guilt and drug wars. And, you know, finally, we end up with a counselor with the, the most horrific things you can possibly imagine i mean there's nothing worse than the counselor in my opinion it is probably worth reminding ourselves of how this book starts he actually writes a screenplay for uh, that he he titles one thing and, and then it becomes cities of the plain and so the the novel of cities of the plain the the basic outline of it is there in that screenplay yeah and after having difficulties getting that film made or getting anyone to pick up screenplay, he goes back and he gives his backstory on John Grady. And that's a lot of pretty horses. And he gives his backstory of the older cowboy, which is Billy Parham in the crossing. And then finally we get to cities of the plain and it's a novel that doesn't quite mesh in its first two thirds with all the pretty horses and the crossing until the final quarter of it is really beautifully a sequel to the crossing. Yeah. But I've always felt that the slight disconnect in tone and characterization is a result of him being kind of true to that initial screenplay and not quite reworking it to fit what he had done in the first two books when he went back to it. But, that's it. That's interesting. That's interesting. I never had thought of it that way before, but you're right. And yet, and yet, in the first book, in All the Pretty Horses, her dream is exactly what happens. Yes. Now, so he had some vision of what was going to happen. Yeah. I guess. Don't you think he had to? Well, again, he'd already written it out in that screenplay. So he, he was working toward that the whole time. And he stayed true to that initial vision. I think what happens to John Grady is very important to him. And, it, and it, you know, when people first read All the Pretty Horses, a lot of critics and scholars complained that, oh, it's just a standard Western. It has a happy ending. And of course, it only has a happy ending if you stop at the end of All the Pretty Horses. If you read the whole yeah. trilogy, it is a it is a tragedy, it, very much in the Aristotelian, Shakespearean sense of yeah. the word. We may not have a hero of mo- noble birth, but he is very clearly a, a matchless, extremely competent, heroic character who's, in whose greatness is also his tragic flaw. It is very much the standard yeah. Oedipus up and Oedipus down kind of tragic arc we see. Now, grounding John Grady, who is hyper-competent and laconic, if you really think back to all the classic cowboy stories, when you have a kind of close-mouthed, quiet, easygoing hero, the only way to get them to say anything in the old films is to have a sidekick who's garrulous <laughs> and smart alecky and who talks more. And we had that in, in Lacey Rollins, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, ever, since Don, ever since Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, that has been the, the standard. Yeah. But it's particularly true in Westerns. I mean, you think about the Cisco Kid and Pancho, think about the Lone Ranger and Tato. I mean, everybody's – Red Rider had a sidekick too. I don't remember who it was. There's always, there's always, somebody, there's always somebody there to share it and to – to back you up, you got to have a backup. And even in the better films, well, you had the Andy Devine character, who's even in Stagecoach. Right. We have the uh, Gabby Hayes. You have the Walter Brennan. 
All right, guys. And they're always the kind of usually the, the one thing that distinguishes them is they, they talk a lot more. They uh, do. I do find Rollins an entertaining character. And in a lot of ways, the Billy Parham that we see in the first half cities of the plane later reminds me a lot of Rollins more than he does Billy from the yeah. crossing, just because he's always got some smart alecky to say. He's always pretty funny. But Blevins is an interesting character, isn't he? This young guy they run into who's following them and who wants to cross the river with them on this gigantic, beautiful, stolen horse. What do you make of Jimmy Blevins? <laughs> well, you know, in the, he steals the film. Yeah. I'm very sad about that film that Peter Joseph has told us so much about, how it was cut, how Billy Bob had a, had a really long script and a long, uh, it was, I don't know, it was three and a half hours or th- something like that. And they cut it down to two hours, right. two hours and two minutes or whatever the going figure of the day was. And they, you know, they, they really screwed it up. They messed it up. It, it doesn't hang together. Right. Because it's missing pieces. It's missing parts. Right. But, but, but Blevins, they, that kid that they got to play Blevins was absolutely perfect. His accent is perfect. Right. His, his animus is perfect. He's just the perfect snot-nosed little 13-year-old yeah. rat rap stallion. Yeah, and of course, Billy Bob Thornton had earlier used him with excellence in Sling Blade, Lucas Black. He's a, he's a kid from Sling Blade. Right. He's a few years older. And I think more recent years, he's been a character. He's from Alabama, and he's been in NCIS New Orleans, which I can't really watch because listening to Oh, the guy from Quantum Leap doing a New Orleans accent is just the <laughs> the one step too far for me. Uh, and plus, at some point, we do we really need one more NCIS show? I think the answer for most of us is no. Yeah, Alan, I do, I do think it's that they're it's important that they're all teenagers, maybe even a tweener in Blevins's case, and yeah. this this gunsel as he's called, this kid with a thirty two twenty special target pistol who can. You know, he's, he's already a gunman. So, you know, is he a reference to the kid from Blood Meridian? Is he a, a Billy the Kid character? All these kind of classic young, violent characters from Western history and from McCar's, uh, McCarthy's own earlier novel. Yeah. Or, But it, as teenagers, they don't have... Well, when you teach Romeo and Juliet, that play only makes sense because they're teenagers. Right. If you get someone who's in their mid twenties and they've had some love affairs gone badly and things don't work out <laughs> at the end, they kind of suck it up and they say, well, that, that just happens. Oh, you know, there's more fish in the sea, but when they're 14 or 15, they go, Oh, I'm going to kill myself. This is so horrible. <laughs> and, you know, so that play only works when you remember they're teenagers. And I really believe that this novel only works when you remember they're teenagers. Well, there is a kind of Romeo and Juliet thing. Yeah, that, that happens. It, absolutely. And also just the way they romanticize Mexico, the way they romanticize the old West, there's a, an older man would have said, yeah, every one of those gunfights, you know, wasn't always guys facing each other in the street. Someone's getting back shot from a saloon door, like Wild Bill Hickok or someone, you would have had the voice of kind of realism and a, a lack of romance, but these guys are too young to really want to hear that. That's true. Romanticized version of Mexico. That phrase troubles me just slightly. Okay because actually that ranch exists. Right. It's a real ranch. And somehow it escaped the Mexican Revolution. I don't know how it escaped the Mexican Revolution, because if Pancho Villa had known about it, he would have been there right. or or something. There's there's something there that we don't know. And uh, so is it romanticized? Yeah, it's romanticized. But 
but it's romanticized in a very culturally contextual way, which is used to create a lot of the tension in the book. Right. And, and of course, I do mean not that McCarthy's romanticizing it, but that the boys are romanticizing it. So they say right. Mexico is land of adventure and where you can be a man's man. And they think they're stepping back to 1870 Texas. Well, and, and what they're not thinking about was, OK, the Texas Rangers and the Comanches are killing each other left and right. 1870s Texas, you have reconstruction going on and it's a bloody affair in Texas. You have the uh, the wars with the Calvary and the Apache going on 1870s Texas. It's not an easy going laid back time. It's, it's ruthless no. and bloody and dangerous. Right. You and I are both fans of the book Empire of the Summer Moon by yeah. Gwen, which is a great history of the Comanche in the 19th century. It's just wonderful. One of the book. best books I've ever read. I love it. It's one of my favorites. And and for anyone who's interested in the story of the Comanche over the course of the of Western settlement by Europeans and descendants of Europeans, he, uh, that book really does a great job of kind of telling you kind of the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story in a lot of ways. And it, it brings in so many things. It brings in the both of the film versions of The Searchers are based on that episode. I mean, it's a the right. whole business of Betsy Parker and, and her son, Quanta Parker. And, you know, it's 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 an incredible story. It's And Quanta Parker, Parker ends up as a rich man in Oklahoma with 10 or 12 wives right. in the Indian Territory in uh, in Oklahoma. And a ton it's of cattle. It's incredible. There, he had an incredible life. He he won. He was he actually, he's the he's the great Native American hero. He's the only half Native American, but. He's well, he's something. Well, he's a, a maestro. You used that term early. He's a maestro of adaptability. Uh-huh. He finally realizes if you can't lick them, join them. And here's <laughs> how to beat them at their own game as he becomes, you know, pretty wealthy with all this cattle. I've never talked to Cormac about that, but he's got to know about it. I'm sure he does. I mean, he's got to because it, it's just so it's so perfect. It's so Cormacian to use that word. I have to explain to my students that we use Cormacian instead of McCarthyite. For obvious reasons, <laughs> right? Well, they they may not know uh, of. Yeah, they don't. Well, at this point, well, the Joseph McCarthy hearings and all that may be so far in the past, and to them, that may yeah. seem like the just normal way things work these days. <laughs> so it's across the border. You know, they're trying to cross into the past. They're trying to cross into a world where kind of masculine values still hold sway, where things are not so mechanized and industrial. They, they go to cities where there's or I should say towns or villages where there's no electricity or running water. And they really are living like they live in the, in the 19th century. And they finally do end up at the, um, at the great Hacendada and it's, it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's gigantic. It's interesting that here we have two working class guys and they don't really mind. Rollins doesn't mind. And I don't think at first John Grady minds stepping into the role of kind of, uh, you know, the work, uh, pure working class job, but it is weird how, Due to his capabilities, John Grady starts being able to climb the social ladder a bit, right? He moves into the stables. He gets to eat breakfast in that big house and so on. So things change a little bit for him. I think there are two things going on there uh, simultaneously. One is kind of the class thing that you just brought up. It, and it's true. I mean, you know, 
John Grady is doomed as far as Alejandra goes because everybody on that ranch speaks better English than he does. Right. They're going to have a Mexican accent, of course, but they speak better. They speak better English. They're more educated. He's got a South Texas education and it's not not what it should be. And he's from lower class, too. There's the class thing, but there's also what's going on in the in the whole Mexican social thing. Ah. There's a whole lot of political commentary that goes almost unspoken about the Spanish Civil War and the Mexican Revolution and how they how Spain predicts Mexico and Mexico predicts Spain. And then on top of that, on top of that, you've got this whole business about reason that McCarthy is criticizing Cormac. Let's call him Cormac. Cormac is criticizing reason ah. in that business about uh, about Don Quixote when they're playing pool. Right. Cormac is using Goya. He's using he's using Cervantes. He's using Goya. He's using, uh, I think, uh, Octavio Paz and ah. maybe and maybe Carlos Fuentes to to make a criticism about how lopsided our culture has become after the Enlightenment. Huh. Could you tell us just a little bit? So we have the, the Spanish Civil War, which starts in... 36. 36, and it's July over by 36. the end of... It's over in April of 39. The Mexican, Re- the Mexican Revolution... Remember that Trotsky's killed in Mexico. There's a whole lot of politics going on in here. Right. That most people, I don't just think, they, they don't realize what it is. It's because Cormac is very clever. And that what he's doing there is he's talking about how radicalism, starting with Trotskyism in Mexico and Trotsky's assassination in Mexico and the whole Mexican revolution and the, social, the socialist aspects of the Mexican revolution, how that is a kind of a precursor for what happens in Spain in the Spanish Civil War. Ah. Because what's happening in the Spanish Civil War, it, it's horrible what happens in the Spanish Civil War. Stalin, right. Stalin uses Spain to destroy, to try to destroy European communism because Stalin wants to dominate world communism. So he goes to Spain ostensibly to help the Spanish Republic, but he doesn't help. He doesn't help. He makes them lose the war. That's the reason that, that Robles, who was John Dos Passos' translator, was assassinated. That's the reason that John Dos Passos and Hemingway had that huge falling out. Because I think Dos Passos kind of figured out what was going on, and Hemingway didn't. No, until, until later. Until and later. then, of course, we'll get from the bell tolls. But with, so with all this in, in the background, you know, John Grady just has no concept, no idea. And then he meets that girl, and he's... He's got all this ability with the horses. Everyone who sees him says, there goes a horseman, you know, his, his competence. And I've known people, Alan, who say, you know, he's too much of a, I don't know, two-dimensional hero. He's too much a classic Western hero. And I think I push back against that because I think what you see instead with John Grady is a kind of rural person that the rural sections of our country used to put out who at the age of 15 and 16 and 17 is in many ways a grown man. Well, where does cowboy, cowboys come from? They came from Tennessee. They, that's true. Many of them did come from Tennessee. You, you know, they're grown men who can work all day, who can do backbreaking labor, who can get involved in, in fights that would be horrifying to people, and who consider themselves grown men. You know, John Grady never refers to himself as a boy in the novel. And what's interesting about the novel is, the three young men are referred to as boys until they cross the river. 
And then John Gray and Rollins are not referred to as boys anymore. Interesting. After that point, it's very interesting. They, it's they, like a made, kind of baptism. They've made the crossing. Yeah, they've made the crossing. Yet, on the other hand, like these guys I've known growing up in a kind of lumberjack community in redneck North Florida, he's completely out of his depth when he's talking to girls. He doesn't understand plays. He doesn't understand why his mother would want to be an actress instead of being a completely destitute ranch wife. You know, it doesn't make sense to him. Right. And the lawyer's trying to explain, not everyone thinks that's heaven to live that kind of life. Right. And John Grady, you get a feeling John Grady's attitude is, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. And, you know, I know to say what instead of what, because that's <laughs> what? part of the world he's from. <laughs> what? So here we have Alejandra. And we have this interesting, I think, uh, division between Alejandra, who is using him as her own way of sticking out her individuality. I don't mean her emotions are not genuine. I'm sure they are. But she also is the one who gets him thrown in jail because she won't let her aunt push her around. And she tells her dad what's been going on. And then we have the Dwayne Alfonso. So that's an interesting divide there. Don't you think between those two characters? Yeah, it is. And in that really central pool game that John Grady and, uh, and the Hacendado have, we, we get all that kind of opened up. He talks about how all these kids went, not him, but his, his sister, the, how they all, and, and the, and Madero, the Mexican president who was assassinated, how they were all educated in France and how these French ideas are invading Mexico and destroying Mexico. And of course, it's it's the Robespierrean uh, version of French politics that he's talking about. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, you, you look at the age of reason and the age of reason, which is totally French, is a very strange thing because what does it produce? It produces the French Revolution. And what does the French Revolution produce? It produces the terror. And what does that produce? It produces Napoleon. Mm. And Napoleon invades Spain, just as just as the junior Napoleon later would invade Mexico. Right. And and all and, and Cormac is working on all of these subtleties without explaining them. I try to get my students to understand Cormac is presenting everything without explaining anything. He doesn't explain right. anything. In fact, he even makes things, he even goes so far as to make things difficult on purpose, putting like the drug dealer in No Country for Old Men, putting his first name uh, on page 36, say, and his last name on page 127 and making no connection between the two. You got to connect them to figure out, oh, that's that historical drug dealer. Yeah, I know who that guy is. Right. But of course, never explaining any of it. Right. And, you know, they look at me, they look at me like I'm crazy when I say this, you know, they say, (laughs) you've got to figure it out. Cormac is a puzzle. Yeah. Cormac is ultra modernism. If the if if Picasso's right that you've got to destroy painting in order to create it, Cormac is the one who really blows up novels, even more so than Hemingway did. But but obviously that's coming out of Hemingway. That's coming right out of Hemingway. And and it's not by accident that we have a scene that's exactly like Indian Camp in the road or Cat in the Road. Right. But especially Indian Camp. I think Indian Camp is one of his one of his best stories by far. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great story. And it's only four pages long. It's four pages long. And it carries more weight than any short story that he wrote or, or as much weight. I mean, it's amazing what he could do in four. Yeah. Pages. You really say it in Hills Like White Elephants, too. Also only a four page story. Only a four page story. Exactly. And nothing, and nothing explained. It's like you're sitting at the next table overhearing the conversation. You have to interpret everything. Nothing is. Explained. Yep. Nothing. And, you know, the new interviews from early in his career that have just been published in this last issue of Cormac McCarthy Journal. Uh, don't have it here handy. It's Diane Luce, and it's another guy who had been doing a kind of parallel project on the same thing, and they teamed up together. 
uh, he actually, uh, again, references Hemingway as, as one of the people that's, you know, he's really looking to. Yeah. So it was Dwayne Alfonso who represents that kind of time period. And it's very powerful uh, elderly woman who's trying to make sure that the life of Alejandra works out the way that, I don't know, she's kind of using Alejandra in the same way that John Grady wants to use that stallion as a kind of symbol of his sexual potency and energy and power. Uh, Alfonso is trying to relive her life through Alejandra, right? Alejandra is going to have all the opportunities. She's not going to make the same mistakes. Well, She's going to be able to go anywhere and do anything. In, in my article on, on, uh, on all the pretty horses, I try to trace all the influences on her and what Cormac, uh, what Cormac has done, whether intentionally or whether intuitively, I can't say maybe both. I think that the great, the great artists always operate both ways, both intuitively and intentionally. But you've got a kind of composite of Golden Age theater and Lorca's theater with respect to women wrapped up in Alfonso, who has, mm. who has had her politics and her ideas shaped by the French, but is nevertheless quintessentially Spanish, not Mexican, Spanish. She says, and she's proud of it, that she's a gachupin. Gachupin is the worst thing that a Mexican can say about a Spaniard. Gachupin is the absolute, with sort of the N-word of, uh. of, of Mexico for Spaniards, a gachupin. But she's proud of being a gachupin. Her family uh. goes back into the, into the 1700s, and she's got, a, she's got a portrait of her uncle from 1797. And, and she's very proud of that, and she never lets go of that. And so what right. she's doing, I think more than anything else, is protecting the only thing that was left to Hispanic women at that time, which was their fame, their, their, right. their reputation. We would, right. their, with their fama, their reputation, we would say in English. And, and so that's what she's protecting, I think, more than. Well, it's, it's the other side of, you know, if we're going to valorize the middle 1800s and the, a code of masculine chivalry slash violence, mm -hmm. we forget that part of that is that the the so-called virtue of women is a kind of prize handed back and forth and that it, that it's easy to romanticize. And then you say, well, what does this code of honor mean where women are concerned? It means they don't have the rights men have. They're not allowed to play around the way men are, you know, and that double standard has not entirely gone away. We still judge a man who has slept around a lot and a woman who has slept around a lot very differently right. as much as we feel like we're so much more enlightened today and we're beyond all that. Well, you have to, you have to, you know, we, we can bring all the feminist criticism to bear that we want, but we still have to recognize that there has to be something inherently um, signifying about female virtue because it crosses many, many cultures. You know, it's archetypal. It may not be right. It may not be right, certainly by modern standards. It, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be right, but it's been there forever. It's probably Darwinistic in its origin. Someone has to protect the the young and if the young are actually part of some other clan why would you want to waste resources protecting them you know or something like that i, I don't know whether it's right or wrong is not the point in what i'm saying it is the point, of course, but it's not, it's not the point of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we'll never get to the rightness or the wrongness of any of that sexual behavior until we understand the archetypal nature of human sexuality. What, what do you think about the fact she plays chess of John Grady? 
And of course, this is another one of those things where John Grady is remarkably competent. Yeah, he's a dick. You know, not only is he a great horseman, not only has he read every book right. and can talk about breeding at a very engaged high level with, you know, the Don, uh, Don Hector, but also he can play chess at, at seemingly an almost championship level of Dwayne Alfonso. What do you make of that chess game? Well, in, I, th- in the I think book? that that's a, a crossover into her masculine side. If you want to, huh. if you want to look at it that way, that's not the way I usually look at things. I tend to look at them more in terms of, of myth and, and archetypes and that sort of thing. But I think that what McCarthy's doing there is to showing her power and her intelligence because she is a domin. She's the she's the dominatrix of the book. She's it. She's running things. She runs the ranch. She runs Alejandra. She runs everything. You know, throughout all McCarthy, for someone who's very much taken with a masculine approach to the world, we have very little in the way of sports. It's nothing about American football or football, soccer. There's nothing about baseball, really. Uh-huh. But you get pool and cards and chess showing up. And, tra- and, and trout fishing. And trout fishing, which I, yeah, I, I should say uh, hunting and fishing. And these things do show up yeah. in different ways, trapping as well. Yeah. And I, I guess I was not really thinking those as sports because they're almost more, you know, uh, outside kind of. Well, they're not competitive. Yeah, they're, they're not competitive sports. They're not. Team. They're not competitive sports, yeah. and they're almost more atavistic they're not team. than that. They're, they're, not they're, they're, they're way of holding on to the past in some ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. But pool is a game of trying to completely control chaos, <laughs> and you, you you use physics to strike a ball, and it hits another ball. Things bounce all over, and you're trying to make them go where you want them to go in a sequence that you can are going to try to control, but it's very difficult. And we know, of course, that Cormac was a very good pool player, and there are kind of references to pool in the different novels in different ways. Then we we have chess, which is all about knowing the rules and no chaos, where you can study hundreds of former games and hundreds of former matches and openings and special reactions and responses to certain openings. And it's so structured and laid out in all these different ways. So it's an interesting dichotomy that with the – with the dad, he plays pool. Yeah, and with the with the aunt, the great aunt, he's playing chess. So it's I don't know if anyone's written on that yet, but they should have. They should, that's, that yeah, is maybe. interesting. Yeah, I never thought about it the way you just presented it, but that it's true. They're in a way they're sort of corollaries: the chess and the pool. Yeah, one one for Hector and one for Alfonso. So Alejandra refuses to kind of let Duena Alfonso run her life. And admits to her father, okay, I've been having sex with this boy, and it totally wrecks everything. The feeling John Grady gets is Don Hector almost decides to kill him and holds back at the last minute. And because he knows that John Grady and Rollins are covering something up because he hasn't told him complete truth about Blevins being with him when they crossed and didn't offer any of that information up, they're hauled off to the Satillo prison down south. And, of course, along the way, the captain begins interrogating him. And Blevins is killed, although in his death, Blevins sacrifices to give them money that will save their lives in some way down the line. What do you make of this whole sequence? We have these long discussions on the nature of evil with the the captain of the police force or the police unit, I should say, that arrest him. What do you what do you make of that whole discussion here with the nature of evil? And then it's brought up again by 
Perez in the prison. And it's almost like one guy's an opening act for the other guy uh -huh. who has a more nuanced discussion. Well, to quote the captain, who is to say? <laughs> you know, I think these are the Mexican sages. There are lots of them. There are a bunch of them in the crossing, too. Yeah. And, and they're, and, you know, they're, right. they're Mexicans that have a take on life that is made up of a wisdom that comes from a really rough life that we don't have. Right. And that's why, that's why the pimp in Cities of the Plain says, we will devour you, my pale, for you and all your pale yeah. empire. That one's straight out at the end of Absalom, Absalom, isn't it? You know, one day I will regard you as sprung from the loins of African kings. He's doing it just to yeah. jab at Quentin Compson, his, you know, his Canadian roommate is messing with the, the Mississippi guy who grew up with the children of slaves, or at least the grandchildren of slaves at that point. So in this one, then this whole discussion of evil is a, a real thing in Mexico, a thing that moves around. And do you see this as something that McCarthy thinks is that like Mexico yeah, is just closer to the truth that, that evil is this? And when he says it's a real thing, I mean, are we to make of it a discernible, spiritual, well, think about malevolent that. force? Or does he mean more just evil runs people's lives? Think about this. In the middle of the counselor, well, actually, a little beyond the middle, the, 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 the drug lord calls the counselor on the phone and quotes Antonio Machado's poetry to him. And that's the moral center of the book. The moral center of the book comes from the drug lord. Right. And must the, must the enchanted world die with you, the world that you create, the world that's in your head? Because when that head goes out, the world stops. It's, um, it's a phenomenological notion of evil and existence that I think Cormac believes in very deeply. And he puts it into the strangest places. He, you know, he puts it, you know, instead of being out of the mouth of babes, it's out of the mouth of monsters comes this wisdom and this sense and this sensitivity and this poetry. Right. And the counselor says, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I've heard of him, which means, of course, he's never even heard of him, much less read the poetry, much less understood the meaning of it. The, say, the Mexican sages are, you know, remember the gypsy says in the crossing, there are no exceptions on the road. He said the rule of the road right. is the rule of the road and there are no exceptions. And there, but later there is an exception. The boy in the road is the exception. Right. But the boy in the road is only the exception if you read him as the second coming. Well, and McCarthy makes it very difficult not to read him that way. That, but of course, he undercuts it with that last paragraph where you're not supposed to. Have, is it too little, too late? I guess is maybe the question. It cannot be put back. Right. Not be made right again. So. You know, we we juxtapose then these the the evil these guys do, and the the evil that's in the prison, and their willingness to kill John Grady and Rollins simply because they're not willing to pay money to join one side or the other in the conflict. They're not divvying up as you know jets or sharks or whatever it is that is there in Satillo prison, and there is a, a bleakness to it and a darkness to it, and you get but it's but 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 it's real, Scott. And I think that's what McCarthy is saying. I'm not saying, saying it's not. I, uh, but Here I, I, lies reality. Yeah. This is this is reality. And people get to protect themselves by having kind of veneers yeah. of civilization that gets tripped away when you go back in time, south of the border, to a former time and place where it's a little truer to 
human reality, I think. Well, I was going to say there's two different things. One is it's interesting to look at the use of weapons. And I've written on this in All the Pretty Horses. Yeah. John Grady, who's kind of puissant and powered, has the the essential Western tool right. of the 44 Colt Peacemaker pistol that he inherits, yeah. of course, from his grandfather. Rollins, who's less powerful, has a 25 carbine rifle. Yeah. It's a small, it's a varmint gun. And it's a lever action. It looks like an old winchester 73 but it's not because it's only small caliber rifle then the weapon of course john grady uses to kill his assailant with is a is a homemade knife it's a shiv and it's that most savage ancient of all weapons the knife that he uses and so i find that progression very interesting and it carries through into the crossing and into cities of the plain where how we see how Billy uses his father's rifle and then how at one point he's drops it and uses a bow and arrow. And then of course we have the pistol and the knife making comebacks in right. uh, uh, cities of the plane. The other thing I was going to say though, is we do have this juxtaposition of the kind of evil elements of Mexico and the dark elements represented by Perez and the captain and some of the corruption that's so overt with all the people who show kindness and goodness to John Grady, like the the kids who are rooting for him to win back the girl. And they say, oh, you have to win over the grandmother. And then he tells them about Dwayne Alfonso and they go, oh, this is so very bad. And they all they <laughs> want to cry. You know, the way the guys in the bunk, the bunkhouse share that meal where they all hand them the, the bread and it's like almost a communion. Yeah. In some way or another. And that is, of course, the story of the crossing, isn't it? The first part has that horrible savagery, but most of the rest of the book is about people showing him kindness and hospitality and yeah, the crossing. True. And in this one, then we get a couple of, you know, as we think then about all the people who show him kindness and, and goodness, including the people of the household, when he goes back and confronts him, I wanted to digress into your thoughts on McCarthy's use of Spanish. It's, there's a little bit going on in Blood Meridian, but this is the one that made him famous for having long passages in Spanish that are not translated. Right. And unlike 90% of American culture, you're not monolingual, you're tri or quadrangle. You've got a lot of languages. I know you're fluent in Spanish and in Italian, and you're. But I'm pretty good in Spanish. And his, uh, yeah, the, the, old, the old PhD's got to count for something. So here's my question, Alan. Um, what were your difficulties with his use of Spanish and all the pretty horses? Just the, in, just the inaccuracies. That's all. Yeah. Just the mistakes. I mean, you know, it's funny because Hemingway uses a lot of Spanish, right? Right. And Hemingway gets a lot of Spanish really wrong. He gets it really screwed up. He gets it so screwed up that he gives an obscene nickname to Maria and for whom the belt. Thinking calls. it's a pet name. I, I don't know what he thought. Some people think he did it on purpose. I can't believe that. Hemingway was too much of a romantic to do that. Yeah. Considering what it, what it means. Yeah. And I just don't think that's possible. Um, but, you know, it's a matter of opinion because there's no way to prove it. Cormac is much better at Spanish than Hemingway is much better. And he, he actually took the time and the trouble to learn Spanish and, and he gets it he, <laughs> to, to quote himself, yeah. to quote him. He gets it. He gets Spanish, but he doesn't check it. Hector's name. That's one of his surnames, is Villarreal. He spells it with one R. Uh, well, it's spelled with two R's. Because uh, in Spanish, uh, an initial R is pronounced as a double R. And when you compound the word, the two words Villa and Real 
which means Royal Village, you have to double the R ah. in order to keep in order to keep the sound. And so he's got he's got Villa Real instead of Villa Real. It's a very subtle difference. Yeah, right? I, I didn't can't say that these ears have heard a lot of it, but no, no, no. But it's not. It's not about the sound. It's about the way it looks. Right. You know, and it's a small thing, but it's you know, yeah. you know what you know. See what Dennis did when he wrote his Billy the Kid novel is he sent it to me to make sure the Spanish was correct, and I did. And then the University of New Mexico Press screwed some of it up, which huh. is too bad. But there it is. But Cormac didn't get anybody to check his Spanish. And the Amer- American publishers were just too arrogant to get anybody to check the Spanish. You know, it's like the Harvard Classics. When the Harvard Classics translated uh, Marshall and Juvenile, some of the raunchier of the, of the Latin poets, do you know what they did? No. They had it translated into Italian. Huh. Instead of English, because it was too obscene for English, but not too obscene for Italian. Now that shows you the utter chauvinism, the utter linguistic chauvinism of Anglo-American publishing. Yeah, it's insane. And just and when was that? Did that happen? When was that? Early part of the twentieth century, oh. first half of the twentieth century, when they did the whole Harvard Classic series. Okay. The of, of all the classics, all the great classic writers. It's in Italian. It's in Italian. It's yeah. okay. You can say it in Italian. You just, just can't, can't say be it in English. English, right? They never had Puritans in the background. Whoa. The end of the novel, we get this really interesting sequence where he goes back after the horses. He tries to get Alejandra. She says no. She tells him about the dream we've talked about, and yeah. instead he decides he said, "You know, I'm not leaving my horses down here." And he goes back and he gets them, and that's kind of a great moment. And we have. Some really interesting sequences where we have like the frontier medicine of him taking a colt off its frame and getting the barrel red hot and pressing it through his leg. And we also, in that sequence, we have the people come up and take the captain away. And the movie actually tries to solve the weirdness of that by having it be the old man he's released from the um, jail is the one who leads them. But there's no such thing in the book, of course. No, and and what's interesting is when he comes back into the United States, he's hauled up, and some guys are trying to get the horses, and they accuse him of having stolen them. When he tells the story, the judge kind of gives him a, 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 an affirming a moment. Scene. Yeah, you know, son, you got clean drawers on. <laughs> yes, sir. He goes, good, because I want you to drop your britches and show me that bullet hole. And he does. He says, I've heard things that have caused me to doubt, you know, the human race, but this isn't one of them. Yeah. <laughs> And John Gray doesn't like that because he feels he's done something dark or evil when he killed the man trying to, the, the other teenager trying to kill him. Yeah. What do you think of that moment when he doesn't want it? So on the one hand, you know, he's lost his father. He's lost his grandfather. He's looking for some kind of patriarchal approval and authority in some way or another. What is going on with all that one way or the other? Is, is that what he's saying in the judgment? On the other hand, he doesn't want to accept it. He says, I'm not really worthy. I'm not who you're making me out to be. I'm not some heroic character. And, of course, the judge says, you, t- you strike me as one of them likes to be a little hard on himself. What do you, what do you yeah. make of all that uh, on that whole scene? I thought they did a brilliant job in the film with that scene. It's wonderful. And, uh, and Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern is t- just terrific. Yeah. You know, both in the film and in the book, it's that, that business where John Grady sort of considers himself unworthy has always 
it's always made me somehow mildly uncomfortable. Huh. I don't know. I don't know what to think of it. I mean, you know, from a from a from a from a Christian point of view, he's right. Huh. But he'd be dead. Right. He'd be dead. You know, all he does is preserve himself. All he does is 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 fight for his own life. Right. And so I don't. I I personally don't see it as a sin, but. And I don't know that he sees it as a sin, but he sees it as something that he wished he hadn't had to do. Right. You know, I, I wonder if what makes you uncomfortable is in formula fiction, one of the ways you show a hero is larger in life and better than everyone else is you have other people talking about him. Uh-huh. You know, when it, Daniel Boone, you know, when Natty Bumpo comes in and says, I had to do this and this and that. Then the other characters all their eyes meet and they all say, Wow, can you believe that? And so we have here an affirmation of his, you know, kind of courage and heroism by this symbol of again, you know, it's in it's near Langtree, Texas, where the hanging judge Roy Bean was. I think that's not by accident either. And <laughs> the and I wonder if in some ways or another, McCarthy knows he's telling us what we want to hear. Because we all affirm John Grady and we like him, but he's also warning you, this is not the end of the story. Right. And just like at the very end of the novel, the last scene after he rides past the you know Indians who are looking at him and watching him go. And of course, there's all these parallels, how the sun coppers his face and, and turns it red as if he himself is one of those Comanches right. uh, as he rides the old Indian trail that has been used in so long. End of the future. Into the future. Yeah, into the darkening world to come. Yeah. You know, and we know that things are not really going to work out so well for him necessarily down the road. And he's going to die by the sword. Yeah. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's why he regrets it is it's a commitment to a kind of life that is going because he doesn't really have to go back for those horses. uh, And he very easily could have killed someone when he does that. Alan, I I think you've answered this already, but let's come back to it. And I'll ask you again, you, you broke it down to two novels and I'll see which one you choose. Earlier, you said your favorite two are all the pretty horses and the road. So if you had to choose one, which one's it going to be? Or is it a third one? Well, I haven't read The Passenger yet or Stella okay. Mars. Yeah, to, to, if I had to choose between the road and all the pretty horses, let me answer it this way, Scott. I teach intro to lit, which is freshmen and sophomores, you know, that's a humanities it's a humanities uh, elective right. <laughs> that, they, that they have to take. Right. <laughs> they have to take a humanities elective. So you can do literature, you can do theater, you can do whatever, you, know, you can do art history. And so some of them choose literature. And, and what I teach are my favorite books, the books that I think are the most important. And I teach No Country for Old Men. Ah. And I teach The Road. I don't teach All the Pretty Horses. On the other hand, I like all the pretty horses, maybe better. Yeah. Reading all the pretty horses is more satisfying to me, I think, that because I mean the road is so bleak, so desolate. Right. So so horrifying sometimes. And and all and and and, and no country for all men's pretty pretty rough too. So I, I guess that's my answer. That's not a very satisfactory answer, but that's my answer. Well, I think it's I think it's a pretty good answer because I think we should always distinguish and I, and I tell students this all the time. There's a difference between what you think is best or most important and what you like the most. True. I yeah. mean, to me, the the best and most important ones are Blood Meridian, 
and Sutri. And then, you know, the first two books of War Trilogy in the Road are all kind of in that top tier. But my most favorite, All the Pretty Horses, is the kind of one that fights a lot with, with Sutri. And then the road really makes a strong coming of it as well. You know, all, all the pretty horses is so poetic and so beautiful. The the love scenes and right. and the, the, just the sheer romanticism of it is, I think he manages it very well. That stuff's hard to write. Right. And it, it's got a really solid plot. It and, does. And it's it funny does. because some books, like Sutri, if you say the plot, well, there's a guy on a houseboat who's, kind of upper class living down and out and he's goes around and talks to people a lot and he has a few things happen and he decides to leave yeah, <laughs> i mean right. not a whole lot of plot to it and even um <laughs> even the crossing well he goes to mexico and all this happens in the first half and then he goes down to his brother then he goes down again then he goes down again and he talks he has he shares a lot of meals he has a lot of conversations and it's impossible to get away the beauty of that novel yeah from that but there's not True. I know a lot of people think that, you know, a lot of people, the crossing is their favorite, but just precisely because of the, the philosophical nature of it, yeah, the speculative I, nature. Yeah. And, and I love the crossing, but it is a different, it is a different tale. Different. It, yeah. is, it is. It is. I, I, and I, I think city, I like cities of the plane a lot too. I do too. Although for me, cities of the plane is redeemed by that last section of Billy. I think it's, the end of the John Grady story is not entirely satisfactory to me. There, his characterization and Billy's characterization just seems a little off to me. Like I said, the first three quarters of the book, then that last section of Billy is pretty amazing writing. And it's another discussion of a dream. So of course, you know, we have that great article by Chip Arnold on dreams in the, yeah. the, the border trilogy. And anyone who out there is interested in this stuff is really encouraged to read up on that. Cause it's just wonderful. But, Thanks, Alan, for coming on the podcast. I've been trying to do it My for a while, pleasure. so I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure, buddy. Alan Joseph is a Hemingway scholar and past president of Ernest Hemingway Foundation Society, past president of South Atlantic Modern Language Association. He's author of 15 books, including On Hemingway in Spain, Essays Reviews, 79 to 2013, White Wall of Spain, The Mysteries of Andalusian Culture, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, Ernest Hemingway's Undiscovered Country. He's author of four critical editions of the poetry of Lorca and a book of translations of Lorca's poetry and prose, Only Mystery, Federico Garcia Lorca's Poetry and Word and Image. He's published numerous articles in Spain, Hispanic Culture in the Atlantic, New Republic, Virginia Quarterly, and North Dakota Quarterly, and the New York Times Book Review, as well as many publications and scholarly journals. He's published numerous essays on McCarthy, some of which have been collected on Cormac McCarthy, essays on Mexico, crime, Hemingway, and God, published by New Street in 2016. And with his daughter, he has recently translated the work of Spanish poet Fernando Valverde and their translation of The Assistance of Harm has been published in 2019 for University Press of Florida. Future projects include a thematic memoir centered on Joseph Literary targeting experience of 62 to the present, university research professor and professor of Spanish University of West Florida, where he's taught for more than five decades. Thanks also to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the theme music interludes for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society. Contact me. Please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. The website's at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy.